Today we are continuing on in a series on uh, providence because even though God is unseen, uh, that doesn't mean that he's not at work and active in the world and moving pieces around for his benefit and for his glory. And I, I think it's rather providential that we be talking about providence on this Veterans Day weekend because when it comes to stories of how God came through, angels were around, or that was amazing this happened, or it was only by the grace of God that we survived, you're going to get a lot of those sorts of stories uh, concerning uh, our, our wars, and you're going to get these stories from our veterans. And so before we dismiss the kids, I do want to give our veterans an opportunity uh, to please stand and just allow us to uh, honor you. If you were, have served in the military and you were discharged under honorable circumstances. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right. At this time, I'd like to go ahead and dismiss the children to Promised Land. If uh, you, that's okay, you know, it's. I don't know why you would assume that I would forget something. I mean, you know, I, it's a little weird. Yeah, it's never happened before. Uh, anyways, if uh, if you do have children with you, we we do have something going on simultaneous to the service. It's really designed to minister to them in a way that's helpful and effective, and 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 just grows them in the Lord in a way that they can understand. But you're welcome to keep them with you here in the service. But we're talking about providence today, and, and, and I was, as I was thinking about providence in our nation, there is one story in particular that, that comes to my mind, and I know some of you as veterans could probably tell a few stories of your own about how God just sort of came through, or this was amazing, or that was extraordinary. Uh, but there's one of my favorite stories, and it has to do with the Civil War. And if any of you are wondering about the facts of what I'm about to tell you, this comes from historian James McPherson, so we can trust this, this is actually how it happened. Uh, we know that around uh, the beginning of September, actually September 10th of 1862, the Union Army of the Potomac was moving north from Washington, D.C., and it was a critical moment in that Army's history. And, and let me kind of give you the backstory here. Uh, we know that the uh, Union Army was having a hard time. They, they were downtrodden in spirit. Their, their morale was low. And the reason for this is because of basically over a year of inaction and miscalculations. And General Robert E. Lee, who was, you know, leading the charge for the Confederacy, uh, leading the uh, North Virginia Army of the Confederate uh, conglomeration, uh, he knew that the Union was in a bad spot. He knew that morale was low. He knew that they were downtrodden. He knew that victory could be at hand but he knew that he couldn't drag on the war because the North had more resources than the South. And so he recognized that if they were going to win, he was going to have to make some bold moves, have some quick strategic victories. Otherwise, the Confederacy would be worn down by the Union and the Union would win the war. So General Robert E. Lee makes this decision. We're going to charge forward into Union-occupied Maryland, hoping that this bold move is going to get the attention of France and England, to name a couple of nations, hoping that maybe this bold move is going to get them to recognize the legitimacy of the Confederacy, and maybe in this way we will win a diplomatic revolution of sorts, and that will bring a quick end to the war and to the Union. So he's getting really uh, aggressive here, General Robert E. Lee. So now you understand a little bit better the stakes when the Union is marching north in early September from Washington, D.C. 
So as the Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, is, is marching from Washington, D.C. into Maryland, as they're rolling into Frederick, Maryland, there's a lot on the line. A lot is at stake here with regards to the soon-coming conflict. Providentially, uh, the, the corporal, uh, Corporal uh, Barton Mitchell, stops with his regiment just outside of Frederick, Maryland, and they're, they're about to march in. This is early in the morning of September the 10th, and he notices something in the field. It's just in the middle of the field of grass. He notices these three cigars with a piece of paper that's been wound around them, goes to pick it up, and he notices on the wrapper this heading, Headquarters, Army of Northern Virginia, Special Orders Number 191, and the document was dated September 9th, so it had been left there just the day before, and what uh, Corporal Mitchell had in his hands was nothing less than a very complex set of orders that had been handwritten originally by General Robert E. Lee. Now, historians will later discover that six of these commands, these documents, had been sent and made, it, made their way to different commanders to the west and to the north of Washington, D.C., but one of those orders, this seventh set of orders, somehow, in some way, just got left there in this field of grass in Maryland. Well, Corporal Mitchell takes the orders, obviously. He makes them aware, his commander's aware of what's happening. And James McPherson, the historian, writes this. He says, the odds against the occurrence of such a chain of events must have been a million to one, yet it happened. And because it did, the course of the war changed and the structure of American society was forever altered. One of the people who served with Robert E. Lee at the Battle of Antietam, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, he said, the loss of this battle order constitutes one of the pivots on which turned the event of the war. In short, this coincidental discovery enabled the Union to make some hasty plans, thus undermining the advantage of surprise that the Confederate Army thought that they had. Seven days later, the conflict all meets up at this place called Antietam Creek. And you might have heard of the Battle of Antietam. It's one of the bloodiest, if not the bloodiest day in American history, where 6,300 to 6,500 American soldiers died on the field of battle in one day. That was more people than died in all of the other conflicts, all of the other wars in the 19th century combined. And that includes the War of 1812, uh, the Spanish-American War, the Mexican-American War, uh, all the Indian Wars. More people died in that one day than all the other wars of the century combined. Twice as many as died, you know, during 911. Bloodiest day in American history. Now, we know that a lot of sacrifice happened there, and it was a it was a terrible, costly day, but the benefits actually outweigh the cost because here's what happened as a result of the battle at, at Antietam. At, at the Battle of Antietam, the, a lot was on the line, and President Lincoln had gone into this opportunity thinking... If we win the battle at Antietam, if somehow, in some way, we emerge victorious, I'm taking that as a sign from God that God is opposed to the practice of slavery, that the war is primarily about ending slavery. It's not that President Lincoln was ever in favor of slavery. It's just that he valued the preservation of the Union to the point that he was willing to allow slavery to coexist. But after Antietam, he took it as a sign from God. He went into it praying about this, that if this happened, he would take it as a sign from God that slavery was the thing that most needed to be opposed. 
And that's when the Emancipation Proclamation came just a few days after the battle at Antietam, which basically communicated to the entirety of the Union that we are, we're moving forward and slavery has got to be abolished. That forever changed the nature of the Civil War because the Civil War was no longer about just preserving a political union. It was about basically charging against injustice and putting an end to the terrible practice of slavery, and it sort of galvanized the nation. And when the nation was galvanized, it was basically the beginning of the end of the revolution, and it was the beginning of a new era in American history. In fact, uh, one of the, the contemporaries and newspaper man, Arthur Greeley, he put it like this. He said that, that the Emancipation Proclamation that came as a result of the Battle at Antietam, the Emancipation Proclamation marked not only the beginning of a new era in the progress of American history, it marked the beginning of an epoch in world history. And all of this comes as the result of someone finding three cigars and a wrapper in a field outside of Frederick, Maryland. Now, some people are going to look at that and they go, oh, that's just coincidence. You know, it's just dumb luck. There are some people that will look at that and they'll say providence. There are some people who look at coincidence and they just say, well, you know, that's just happenstance. It occurs. How weird. But many believers will look at events like this and they will say, that's just our humble God remaining at least somewhat anonymous. God is providential. And he's been providential over this nation as he's been providential over all of the goings on in history since the beginning. This morning, I want to direct your attention to the Bible. Now, we're going to turn our attention back to the book of Esther, Esther chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17 in particular. And let me just set this up for you in case you were not here or you did not hear last week's message from Esther. Let me just set up the passage that we're about to read. We know that by the time we get to chapter 4, a decree has gone out to all of the Persian Empire. It's a decree that comes from this man named Haman. Haman is the second in command underneath Xerxes. And uh, this man in, who's second in command, he's got it out for the Jews. Now, Xerxes signs off on this command in a general way, but Xerxes doesn't know it's specifically against the Jews, but it is against the Jews. And, and Haman sends out this decree that all the Jews, he's decreeing genocide, that all the Jews will be destroyed, killed, and annihilated on one day. It's going to be a really bloody day in Persia. Xerxes kind of knows about what's going on, but he doesn't know it's against the Jews. And he also doesn't know that his wife, Esther, the queen, also is a Jew. He's in the dark about all of this. Well, the decree goes out. The Jewish representative, who's kind of at the middle of all these goings on, his name is Mordecai. And he's also the uncle to Esther. And he sees the decree and he gets word to Esther. Esther, you've got to take this decree to Xerxes, bring it to his attention. We've got to put an end to this. And Esther replies, I can't just go in and see the king. This is a different time, it's a different empire, and it's a different kind of king. Xerxes is quite volatile. And one of the rules is you couldn't just barge in to see the king. Uh, nobody, man, woman, even the queen, could just barge in to see the king unless the king called for that person, unless the king invited them to see him. That's where we are in the story. So with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is Esther chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. Then Esther spoke to 
Hatak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. So this is Esther saying, I know what you need me to do, and I really want to do it too, but I've got to wait for him to summon me. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. These are the go-betweens, these servants. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, before we get into the thick of providence and its implication for our lives, let's just make sure we understand what we're talking about here. Providence is this idea, this, this notion, this biblical concept that God moves around events and circumstances and people for his purposes and for the benefit of the people that he loves. Specifically, as we put it up on the, on the board here, providence is the way in which God wisely and lovingly orders events for the ultimate good of his own people for his purposes. Now, providence is taught Indirectly and directly all throughout the scripture, but probably the verse that is quoted most frequently that supports the idea of providence is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, God works for good. Now, here's my question for you. Does that verse say all things are good? No. In all things, God works for good. Part of the wonderful implication of the teaching of providence is that God is always at work. But one of the implications is not that all things are good. We can go over to the book of Genesis. You remember the story of Joseph. It's rather famous. Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers, and then they pretend as if he's dead, and then he meets up with his brothers years later after he's become essentially second in command over all of Egypt so as to save his family and God's people from starvation. And here's what Joseph says to his brothers when he sees them, when there's this wonderful reunion. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. The thing that the brothers meant for evil was selling Joseph into slavery and pretending to the dad that he was dead. Now, just in case anybody here is confused by this, that's a sin. God does not want anybody selling family members into slavery and then acting as if they're dead. Okay? We have this word called sin, and the word sin basically indicates God doesn't want that. That's not God's will. And yet, even when God's will is not done, God's will is still done. And you say, well, that's just a paradox. Yes, that's right. We'll talk about that in just a second. But these two things coexist where people will oftentimes do what it is that God doesn't want them to do. And yet somehow, in some way, God still makes his will happen. He brings about the result that he wants to bring about. Now, you say, well, how could that possibly be? Let me just give you one suggestion, one possibility here. God's, God's bigger, stronger, and smarter than you and me. 
Let's just imagine we're playing chess. Okay, Gina is a she's becoming a chess expert. She plays chess all the time. She's got this app on her phone where she can play people from all over the world in chess. We don't know who those people are on the other end of the app. I always tell her, you know, isn't that wonderful that you beat some five-year-old Russian kid today? Fantastic. Uh, but really, she's getting she's getting better and better and better and better. She's really good. But if somebody is a chess master, it doesn't matter any move that you make, they are going to win. The desired result that they're going to bring about is your queen is going to be taken, the king's going to be taken, the whole thing's going to be taken. They're going to win because they're bigger, smarter, stronger than you are when it comes to chess. Whatever your maneuver is, whatever your choice is, they're going to incorporate your choices into their ultimate design, which is to win. Now, I don't know that that's the perfect illustration, but the reality is God is always at work. The question is never, is God at work here? I know sometimes people talk about this is a God-forsaken place or, you know, war, God wasn't there. God is always at work everywhere. He was at work in a Persian empire, a pagan Persian empire, when the empire was on the verge of committing genocide against the people of God. God's always at work. That's not the question. The question is, am I working with God or am I working against God? But providence and human free will do not destroy each other. There's not a contradiction. It may, be a, it may appear to be a contradiction, but it's not an actual contradiction. Because oftentimes, our choices and God's providence are presented as both being entirely real, and they're presented oftentimes in the very same passage as if there is no conflict between the reality of us being morally responsible and the reality that God is providential over all things. Let's, let's turn our attention back to Esther. That's the book where, we're, where we are. If you're looking for a place where God emerges to the surface, the place in the book of Esther where this happens most clearly is Esther chapter 4, verses 10 through 17, the passage that we just read. Now, I mentioned last week that the name of God never appears in the book of Esther. You don't find Yahweh, you don't find Elohim, and never, if you, in your English translations, you're not going to find the word God in there or Lord. You know why? Because it's not there in the text. That's what makes Esther kind of a weird book, one of the things that makes it weird. And yet, God does sort of come to the surface and his sovereignty is at least indirectly talked about in this particular passage. Okay, let's, let's just kind of go through this. When Mordecai says to Esther, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Where do you think Mordecai is expecting this deliverance to come from? Well, from heaven, from God. And when Mordecai tells Esther, now look, if you don't do what it is that you need to do, even though it's really difficult to do it, God's going to save the Jews anyways, except for you. How, how is it that Mordecai knows this to be the case? Because he has this conviction that God is not going to allow a cowardly queen who will not stand up for her people to go without judgment. And when later... Mordecai ponders, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Who knows that God didn't put you in this position for this particular reason. When he's pondering this, he's obviously assuming that there is a greater purpose and that there's someone exercising this greater purpose. Well, whose greater purpose is this? Well, it's God's. And who's seeing to it that this greater purpose is fulfilled? God. God is obviously involved here. The assumption is that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is providential over what is happening here. And very clearly, 
Esther calls for prayer. Now, it doesn't use the word prayer. It says that she was going to fast, and her maidens around her were going to fast, and she's asking Mordecai to tell everybody in Susa, which is located in modern-day Iran, everybody needs to fast, and we're going to fast for three days, night and day. Everybody's going to fast. Well, why were they fasting? Because fasting intensifies prayer. To whom do you think they're praying as Jews? God. Why? Because they trust that God is providential, that he's sovereign. And yet, at the same time, in this passage where the sovereignty of God and the providence of God rises to the surface, this is the passage that's the moment of truth. This is the place where Mordecai, through the servants, through the attendants, is basically having this come-to-Jesus moment with Esther. In summary, he's telling Esther, Esther, make sure... You do what you need to do because you have a unique position to do something for the Jews. Now, I know that doing the right thing isn't always easy. But if you don't do what you need to do and go see Xerxes, you're going to perish. Because there is this decree that's against all the Jews. And even if you're a queen, that's not going to save you because you're still Jewish. So you better do it or else you're going to perish. And if you don't do it, well, God's going to get somebody else to do it. And if somebody else has to do it, well, you're going to perish then too. Because God will judge you because he's put you in this particular position to do the right thing as hard as it is. So you just come to terms with the reality that you may perish and you may not perish. And it's going to be hard, but you need to do the right thing. See, because God is a providential God, Esther, you need to do the right thing. Now, this seems rather paradoxical, doesn't it? But I'm going to put it up on the screen because I want you to see this for yourself. Because you have a providential God, you had better choose to do the right thing. Those two things go together. They're absolutely overlapped in this passage. The providence of God and our need to be obedient. Our need to be courageous. Our need to do what it is that we know God would have us to do. Providence does not overwhelm free will. It doesn't destroy or blow apart free will, actually what the providence of God does is it encourages you and it encourages me to choose to do what is right. And here's why. It's a privilege to be used by God to do what is right. And when we know that we're in a partnership with God, but that God is actually the senior partner, we know that he is going to uphold us and sustain us and strengthen us as we choose to do what is right. It's like we give him our loaves and fishes and he takes what it is that we give and he blesses that because we recognize that when we are fighting for what is true, what is right, what is just, what is noble, what is pure, God is fighting with us because we have a providential God, we should do what is right. All that goes together. Now, I I know that I opened up a little bit earlier with this story from our nation's history about the providence of God. And were it not for God providentially placing those three cigars in that wrapper out in that field to be found, we would not have this union today. The Civil War could have and probably would have been lost. The Confederacy may have won, should have won, but it didn't. God providentially won the victory. And we can also say at the same time, were it not for the bravery and the heroism and the willingness to sacrifice their own lives, if these soldiers had not been willing to die, we wouldn't have the nation that we have today. Are both of these things true? Absolutely they are. Now, I know what some of us are thinking. We're going, okay, well, if the providence of God does not in some way, shape, or form lessen my moral responsibility or my free will, 
And if the providence of God can't even be trusted to make sure that I don't have to sacrifice and suffer and even die, well, what good is the providence of God? I'm glad you asked. We can answer that. But we can only answer that now that we've put a little distance between ourselves and a view of providence that is more fatalistic than it is biblical. The providence of God is not kesarasara, whatever will be, will be, and it's somehow going to induce laziness or undermine or, or, or undergird some sort of comfort-drivenness. Sometimes when people start talking about providence or they talk about sovereignty, they're just like, yeah, God will work it out. I don't have to do anything. No, if God is providential, you absolutely need to work because he's the senior partner, yes. He's going to carry you, yes. But if God is your senior partner, you're not going to be lazy. And you're not going to shy away from what it is that God commands for you to do when you recognize he's your senior partner. See? So what's the good of providence if it doesn't lessen my moral responsibility, if it doesn't somehow ensure that I can avoid difficulty, pain, suffering, and even death? Because on occasion, like Esther, we have to come to a point in our lives where we say, well, if I perish, I perish. And I'm okay with that because God's providential. Well, there's a bright side to the providence of God, and let me just give it to you in three simple points, okay? Number one, providence means that while I am responsible for my life, I'm not ultimately responsible for my life so I can relax. Now, here's what I mean by this. I saw Travis Bundrick, who is the director of the Williamson Baptist Association, and a wonderful person, good friend to me, good friend to this church, and I was just telling him, Travis, I've never felt more strongly in my gut. I've always known this to be true, but I've never felt more strongly that I am pastoring somebody else's church, that I am just an under-shepherd, that the good shepherd is running everything. And immediately, without hesitation, he said, sure takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Absolutely it does. When you recognize that as a partner with God, no matter, I'm not just talking about a pastor, I'm talking about where you are in your life. If you are a partner with God, it absolutely takes the pressure off when you recognize, yes, I've got things to do and I'm going to be busy and he's my boss. But I also recognize that my main job is just to get in on what God is doing and be with him. When you recognize that, it takes the pressure off because you recognize you've got a senior partner like no one ever could have or imagine. He's going to uphold you in what it is that he's called you and equipped you to do. I love this story that comes from Ruth Graham. She tells about, that's the wife of Billy Graham. She tells about this time when a man who was running an airport in rural Mississippi one evening was showing his pastor the airport, just a county airport, kind of out, out in the country, and it's at night, and, and this man is showing his pastor, a man named Slim Cornette. Look, he's just saying, look, if, if we wanted to turn the run, runway lights on, here's the switch, and he flips the switch, and on come the runway lights. And this man says to Slim, and let's just imagine that there's a plane up there somewhere that's in distress, and they need to land, and they're, you know, it, it's an urgent crisis situation. Well, you would flip this switch, and he flips the switch, and on goes this incredible emergency beacon. Seconds, what, what seemed to be seconds later, Pastor Slim and this man from his congregation saw this plane essentially materialize out of the darkness and land right there on the airport. And they watched in amazement as Franklin Graham got off the plane 
and explain the situation. The pilot who was taking Franklin Graham back to some location, some school in, in Texas, had explained that they'd had a power failure on board, an electrical failure. The plane was still working, but they had no navigation, they had no lights, they had no communication. They were just up there, flying silent, flying blind, over the night sky of rural Mississippi. And then they saw the lights. Ruth Graham goes on to explain that before they had taken off, Billy Graham, of course, prayed for his son Franklin and prayed for the pilot that God would watch over them and protect them and bring them safely to where they need to be. And that brings us to the second point of providence. Providence and prayer to go, go together, so I pray. And, and you pray. And this is a mystery, but we notice in the midst of all of the discussion about providence and the obvious providential care that is exhibited here in Esther, Esther calls for people to pray. She prays. Those around her pray. Everybody in the town, they all pray. Prayer and providence go together. And some of you are thinking, well, how does that happen? Because if God has a plan and he's working out that plan and I just pray to God, God, would you do this? Would you help with that? How's that work? Because of my own free will, I'm talking to God about his sovereign plan and how, how does that work together? I don't know. And I don't have to know because there are certain things in the Bible that appear to be contradictions, but they're not actual contradictions. And we even have a word for things that appear to be contradictions, but they're not actual contradictions. It's antinomy. And antinomy is something that seems to be a contradiction, but it's not actually a contradiction. You say, well, how do you know it's not actually a contradiction? Because both things are taught in the Bible. Let me give you an example of an apparent contradiction that everybody who's a Christian accepts. The Trinity. God is one and God is three. Our God is one and yet the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. And people say, well, which one is it? And I would tell you both. Why? Because both are taught in the Bible. You see, about 1,700 years ago, the church got together and said, you know, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, this is all taught and we're okay with the antinomy. We're okay with the apparent contradiction. It's only apparent. It's not actual. Can we figure it out? No, but that's okay. It's not a problem to be solved. It's a mystery to be embraced. The end. Now, why can't the church do that with regards to providence and prayer? I would suggest that the church would have been so much better off 1,700 years ago if we would have crossed that bridge with regards to providence and prayer or the sovereignty of God and the free will of humankind. Both are taught, and they're not just taught in different places. They're taught, like here in Esther chapter 4, in the very same place, overlapped, without anybody seeming to even notice that there's a contradiction going on. You know why they don't notice that there's a contradiction? Because there's not a contradiction. Because this is not a problem that needs to be solved. It's a mystery that we embrace. I think it's actually a little bit silly to try to solve a problem that the Bible doesn't see as a problem. When we interpret the Bible, we need to allow the Bible to ask the questions, and then we'll get the right answers. But if we come to the Bible not allowing the Bible to ask the questions, then we're going to get the wrong answers. And for the Bible, this doesn't seem to be a question. It's just a mystery that we embrace. Now, I could give you certain suggestions. We don't have time for this, but I have suggestions on how, quite possibly, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man actually work together. I'm a philosopher by nature and by training. So I'm really, really good at talking a whole lot about nothing and bringing people nowhere. Uh, but I'm not going to do that this morning. I'll do that in staff meetings, 
But we're not going to do that here, okay? And that's another mystery. Three great mysteries. The Trinity, providence and prayer, and why there are no want ads in the paper for philosophers. But I digress. We're going to move on to the next thing. Providence and prayer go together. Number three, there's one more thing that we have to understand about providence, and that is providence needs to be accepted. It must be trusted, but our presumptions about the unfolding of providence must be rejected, so I must remain open. Here's what I mean by this. You can trust that God's at work, God's doing something, but you're going to get in trouble when you start saying in advance of God doing what it is that God's going to do, oh, I know what God's going to do. No, you don't. You don't know what God is exactly going to do until God's done what God's going to do. If you're reading through the book of Esther, you can kind of see, oh, yeah, God's in charge. Oh, yeah, he's setting something up. Oh, yeah, he's moving something somewhere. But if you start getting too predictive about exactly what God is going to do, you're going to get in trouble. Always will get in trouble. Here's what I mean. I'll give you two examples, one from Esther and one that's a little bit more contemporary to our situation. In the book of Esther, you, you know, part of the story, Esther walks in to see Xerxes, and she says, if I perish, I perish, but she's all prayed up, and everybody around her is prayed up, and she goes in to see the king, and he sees her, and he gets his scepter down, and she's dressed to the nines, and, and he just says, okay, Esther, I can see something's bothering you. What is it? Now, if you were in her high heels, and I were in her high heels, uh, if I were in high, her high heels, y'all would be really disturbed. But if we were in her shoes, we might be tempted to say, oh, I see what God's doing. This is the moment that God has arranged. This is it. Because the king just asked me, come out with it. The king just told me, I'll give you anything. I'll give you half the kingdom if you ask for it. That just seems like a perfect setup. And for some reason, Esther recognizes God has not quite yet brought the situation to where it needs to be. How does she know this? I don't know. Maybe it's prayer. But she just knows this isn't the time. And so she tells the king, let's get together. Let's have a lunch. Haman will be there too. So the lunch rolls around. And now it's more intimate. She's with Xerxes and she's with Haman. All the parties that are pertinent are there. And the king is on another level with regards to what is going on. And he asks her, what's bothering you? What can I give you? I'll give you half the kingdom if you ask for it. And you would think, this is it. This is what God's been bringing us to. Nope, not, not quite. Not yet. Not there quite yet. For some reason, Esther knows this. And she waits a little longer. She remains open to what it is that God is going to do because she's not being predictive. She's being an attentive listener to what God is doing. And between that first lunch and the second lunch the next day, three amazing things happen. First of all, Haman sets up this gallows in his backyard that he eventually gets hung on. Kind of interesting. Kind of creepy, but interesting. The second thing that happens is the king has insomnia and somebody reads to him a portion of his memoirs that remind him, oh, I need to, I need to remember to honor the Jewish representative. I'll do that first thing in the morning. The next thing that happens between those two lunches is that Haman, the bad guy, honors Mordecai in the morning before that second lunch. None of that is anything that Esther could have possibly remotely manipulated at the second lunch. Xerxes says, so what do you want me to do? Is there anything I can do for you? Something's bothering you. I'll give you half the kingdom. And that's when she comes out with it. The point is, we have to be 
patient. We have to wait on the Lord. We cannot be presumptuous. As you see it up on the screen, providence requires attentive listening to God, not mere opportunistic interpretation of the signs. You can see God's working something out, but until you're confident that he's finished, you need to remain open. I don't know how else to explain it. We just have to be humble before the providential dealings of God. But God does providentially deal with us and arrange things and move things around. Now, I want to give you one more illustration of this that's more pertinent or contemporary to our situation. And the beauty is always in the details. When when your kindergartner brings you a painting from school, you go, oh, that's, that's nice. But when you look at the Rembrandt, you're amazed. Why? Because of the detail in the painting. The detail is always what makes the providence so compelling, like we see painted for us in the book of Esther. So there's one more thing I want to bring to your attention, but we're out of time. So you'll have to come back next week. You know what that's called? A providential hook. You're going to have to come back, and we're going to get a little bit more detailed about what God is doing around here. But just real quickly, let me give you sort of some overview or kind of a, a, I don't know, a broad brush perspective on how God has providentially cared for us. I mentioned some of this last week. Yeah, we know that John and Beth are going to be leaving, and y'all don't say anything bad because Beth's mom's sitting right over here. Uh, John and Beth are going to be moving to to Virginia, and we wish them and we wish them we wish them so well as they're shoveling snow for the next five months. Ha 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 ha! Uh, but but that's okay. We're not bitter. Um, we do. We wish them well. They've been great to us, and he's a continued. Friend for me and will be, uh, you know, until the day I die or he dies, whoever goes first and, and I love him. But the Lord has, has moved them and that's wonderful. But God wasn't surprised by any of this. Uh, God saw things coming and, and, and kind of interesting with regards to this service, we've got great people on the praise team. You, you want to agree with that? I mean, that's the truth. You know, things. Things are going to continue on in a very good, healthy manner. And, uh, you know, providentially, you know, Alan over here was, you know, for a brief season, a worship minister of another church not too far from here. And God brought him back. And I'm not saying it was just for this. But we're glad that God providentially saw fit to have you here for this time. God's taking care of things. Really, you can you can thank you for that. It's true. Um, across the street... Uh, we have back in town the first worship minister in our church's history, David Morris, who is, an, who is a missionary with the International Mission Board. He's been on, on the continent of Africa for the last 23 years, and he just happens to be here for a season until, oh, mid-May. And he just happens to have an office right next to mine. Uh, and so we've got somebody who's leading the choir, and we have somebody leading congregational worship, Brett Haas, who I think is probably the long-lost nephew of George Beverly Shea. And it was just, it was a, no, really, it was just an amazing service this morning for, for the traditional service. God is taking care of things. He's sovereign. Now, we also knew, that, when I say we, I'm talking about the personnel committee, because God does set people in places for times like this. We don't have a queen around here or a king around here, but we have a personnel committee. And, and the personnel committee that has been placed by God and the church leadership committee that has been put in its place by God, we've been aware for some time that Beth was wanting to move toward a part-time position. And so we had already begun looking for somebody to, to fill 
the other half of the part-time obligations. And so we kind of had heads up before the whole church knew that the Sullivans were going to be moving. So we'd already started a little bit of a process with regards to looking for a children's minister. Well, as it happens, over the last six months, I've been developing a relationship with somebody who has a calling for children's ministry and has served as a full-time children's ministry minister in other churches, and she has written books and chapters, and she's published, and she was a professor at uh, the seminary in New Orleans, and uh, providentially, she's been here in this community for the last six months, and they actually came here helping to start a church, which is right up the street. You may have heard of it, Nasho, which is, you know, fantastic, and and uh, her husband, Ben, helped with uh, the construction of the building, and so if you ever go into 309 Coffee, which is an amazing coffee house, he's the one who made it look so beautiful. And so I just established a relationship with the pastor there and we got to talk and say, Hey, can we help you? And yeah. So we've been providing space for them on Sunday nights at five o'clock while they meet, they have child care workers that are here taking care of things. And through all of this stuff and, and kind of a supportive role that our church has played with regards to at least the Sunday nights, I got to know Ellen a little bit better and, and Ellen, you know, was brought here to this community and, and I have to tell you that at least in terms of the resume and overall qualifications, we've never had a more fully qualified resume ever that I've seen with regards to the children's ministry position. Now, over the last week, we did another interview with somebody else who also has a very interesting calling. Not exactly sure where that's going because, you know, God's still unfolding things, which is another thing that's kind of interesting. I can't tell you how it all ends because it hasn't ended yet. But with regards to Ellen... Uh, we felt very strongly, uh, myself and, and others who were part of this process, that Ellen is the one that God has brought to our church. And so as of Thursday, she's the new children's minister here at Main Street Baptist Church. So, Ellen, you can stand up back over here. And uh, we're, no, seriously. God, God's working that out. And, 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 and God's not through with regards to children's ministry and with regards to what he's going to do with worship ministry and all these other things with regards to helping us to better align as a church with where God is taking us for the next year and for the next 10 years. I don't know what's coming next. I just know that God's involved. Kind of interesting, about two months ago, I was visiting with another pastor, a pastor friend of mine. He pastors at New Hope Baptist Church. His name is Keith Pate, wonderful guy. We were talking and I don't, I don't know how this came up, but Keith basically said, when it comes to hiring staff, the most difficult staff to hire is children's minister. And, uh, and they went through a process that lasted about a year, and he was thinking about getting a headhunter and all the rest, and, and it really wasn't even still a perfect fit, but just worked and worked and worked, and they found somebody. And he says the hardest position to fill, and part of the reason is the majority, the vast majority of the people who are in children's ministry are, are wives, and they're, they're married, and getting them to relocate at the same time that the husband can relocate is never uncomplicated. And so, uh, and so we, I've never heard of this happening before, but we just hired a children's minister before our other one left. So I called Keith Saturday and I said, God loves Main Street more than New Hope. And, uh, and he, he, he knew I wasn't serious, but I kind of was. Uh, but I digress. God's taking care of us. Here's the point. Nothing ever surprises God. Nothing, nothing is beyond God's ability to direct. If God moves somebody from one place, he's moving somebody in. You know why? Because his church is a lot bigger than Main Street Baptist Church. 
We are connected to the church down the street. We are connected to the church in Richmond. And if God is moving around the pieces, don't you think that if he's moving one thing out of here, he's moving something in over here? And if, and if someone is moved to another place that in his grand scheme is a better fit, it just may be, and this isn't personal against anybody that God is, is moving, but it just may be that God has another plan for someone else. God's in control. And because he's a sovereign God, we pray and we wait on the Lord. And because he's a sovereign God, we do what it is that we know that we need to do. And because he's a sovereign God, we, we wait and we wait patiently and expectantly for what it is that God's about to do. And we don't manipulate situations. We just know that when you come to a, 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 when you come to a fork in the road, you take it. And we came to a fork in the road with regards to the children's ministry and she was here. It was God. We don't know what's going to happen next with regards to the other different pieces. But we're going to pray and we're going to wait and we're going to trust and God's going to do something amazing. Do you believe that? I hope so. Let's bow forward in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the grace that you show us in terms of your providential care. We trust that, that you, our God, who in the fullness of time sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, for those of us who are under the law, that we might become you know, adopted as, as your sons. We know that you set things up. When we look at the central event of Christian history, the coming of Christ and his death on the cross for the likes of us, we see that you were moving heaven and earth providentially to do for us what we could not do for ourselves because you love us and you care for us and you want us personally involved with you. You are passionate for us. You're passionate for this church in a way that we can't even begin to approximate. We are... We are not panicking. In fact, we are excited about what you have in store for us. And we are excited about what you have in store for John and Beth. We are excited because this is your church and you are a providential God. And we trust in your providence in the best of ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.